The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts to talk about how to transform your workplace and grow your business through the core human practices of love and care. Glad you're here. Love in Action in the context of today's episode is about being fully human, seeing others as fully human and making others feel fully human through our shared humanity. And I personally believe, and you probably have gotten this by now if you're a regular listener, I, I think my scholar colleagues, I should say, like today's guest, would probably back me up on this. And I believe that our ability to empathize, connect, and relate to one another determines the outcome of everything we do as one human being to another. Mm-hmm. And by contrast, our ability to dehumanize others, and I'm going to explain how we do that, opens the door to things like violence, aggression, and brutality. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. In his new book, The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World, award-winning social psychologist and author Adam Waits explores our innate need for human interaction. And Adam reveals an obvious but overlooked truth, which is that humans are psychologically powerful. Our very presence can make experiences feel significant. We can inspire moral behavior in others and we can encourage positive action. And if you look out your window and watch your TV, it's pretty obvious. There's a lot of conflict, hatred and division in the world right now. I can't recall a time when we as human beings were so divided across so many lines. And that's why I think Adam's book and research is so timely and crucial. Using strategies that emphasize shared values and experiences can allow people with deep-seated animosity to come to the table, feel heard and understood, and solve problems together. In fact, one experiment involving empathy, I'm going to get to that, involves both conservatives and liberal politicians. And what Adam's going to talk to us about is that they grew more optimistic that they could actually find solutions together to their conflicts. Imagine that. Now, Adam joins us to share his findings from his research as published in his book, The Power of Human. But first, who is Adam Waits? Well, he is an award-winning social psychologist, as I mentioned. He's also associate professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, and all kinds of other places. Truly an honor to have you. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. So we like to start with a gratitude moment, which we definitely need more of nowadays. So what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days, Adam? 
Yeah, well, I'm still employed. My family is healthy and uh, my family's safe. So, you know, you look around at the world and feeling like those are pretty important things. Yeah, no kidding. A pandemic, in my case, a pandemic followed by a EF3 tornado that tore through Chattanooga (laughs) and displaced us as a family, followed by racial unrest. I mean, uh, 2020 has gotten off to a great start, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So let's get our listeners acquainted with your work, what you do. And I'm going to ask you the Simon Sinek kind of a question. What what would you say is your why? Yeah, well, I'm a social psychologist. And what that means is I do research about how thinking people think about other thinking people. I've been doing this for, you know, almost 20 years. I do a lot of research about why people are good or bad at taking others' perspectives, why considering the humanity or failing to consider another's humanity has an effect on their willingness to treat them kindly or aggressively. I do research on how people think about right and wrong. And in terms of my why, I guess I just really became interested in psychology when I realized there was a science that you could use to help solve large-scale societal problems, like why people don't get along or why people behave irrationally in mass. And so that just keeps me going. That's the big mm. part of my work that I get a lot of intrinsic enjoyment out of. Yeah. And that's what keeps me going is when I have these conversations with people like you as well. So I want to start right off the top and set it up like this. So we humans have a long history of dehumanizing one another. And you use many examples in the book, including most recently the dehumanizing of Syrian refugees who fled the civil war and ended up in Europe. And this is one of the groups that you say people most commonly dehumanize, you know, from as recent as three, four, five years ago. Mm-hmm. We also see another form of dehumanizing with the current racial injustice. And if you want to even dig in into our history, the systemic racism in this country. So let's define the term. What exactly is dehumanization? Yeah. Well, it's a great question because dehumanization can mean multiple things. I usually lump dehumanization in two buckets. There's sort of active dehumanization and passive dehumanization. And active dehumanization is explicitly likening another person or social group to animals or to automata, really explicitly saying that these people are no different from non-humans. And that's the type of dehumanization that you often see in genocide or slavery, or kind of these systemic processes like ethnic cleansing that are really associated with exterminating another group. Then there's passive dehumanization, which I think is much more of an issue that affects everyone. It's much more widespread. Passive dehumanization is really just overlooking others as thinking, feeling beings. So Each one of us has a mind, but we don't often consider that everyone has a mind. And what I mean by a mind is just the ability to think, to feel, to have experiences, emotions, intentions, plans, opinions, experience of feeling love, feeling hate, all of these things. 
we often simply fail to consider that another person is engaged in this mental experience and we overlook that part of them. And that is the process that I think has become more widespread in recent decades and is something that's affecting us all. Now, this active and passive dehumanization, they have sort of the same mechanism, which is failing to consider another person as having a fully engaged mind, but one of them relies on an active denial that the other person has a fully human mind, and the other one is simply ignoring that Mm. mind. Mm. Okay. So let's put some meaning around the term now with some actual examples of, you talk about in uh, chapter one, that we've been experiencing this dehumanizing shift. It's happening for decades, and I would argue for centuries. (laughs) What would you say is the most alarming evidence? How are we dehumanizing each other? Yeah. So one disclaimer I want to make is that if, if you read, say, Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, he presents a pretty compelling case that over the course of human history, violence in particular has declined. And that's a pretty bulletproof argument. And along with violence, I would say a lot of maybe active, blatant, brutalizing dehumanization has declined Mm. as well. I'm picking up on what might be just a blip in history, which is the past five to six decades since at least the late 1960s, where we're experiencing a rise in subtle dehumanization, subtle disengagement from one another, subtle overlooking of others' minds that manifests in decline in trust of each other, a decline in empathy, a decline in in in-person socializing, a rise in individualism where we have this sort of live and let live philosophy rather than a come together philosophy. And where that manifests is in uh, four pillars. I call them pillars. Pillars is actually sort of cheating because That allows me to say that these are both kind of causes and consequences of this dehumanizing shift. But at any rate, what these four pillars are, where you see a decline of people really engaging with each other at a deep human level, are as follows. So one, I would say three of them are are pretty obvious, and you've heard a lot about them. So one is the rise of political polarization whereby Mm. people on the political left and people on the political right see less eye to eye, have more uh, dehumanizing depictions of each other, are less inclined to mingle with each other, have less interest in each other. And that's been going on for several decades. If you look at public opinion polling around what do conservatives and liberals think about the current president? Well, they were very split around Bill Clinton more split around George W. Bush, even more split around Barack Obama, now a record split around Donald Trump. You see this in how different news sources describe current events. So we have media now that is more polarized with explicit channels for the right and left. And you see this in kind of voting behavior as well, voting for more extreme candidates. So that's one kind of piece of obvious evidence that people are growing apart along political lines. You also see this, another pillar is the rise of income inequality, what I call stratification. Mm -hmm. What this means is that people who are of a lower socioeconomic status have less in common with people of a higher socioeconomic status. So as income inequality rises, tastes and preferences from, you know, country music to smoking to 
you know, whatever you can think of, food consumption differs along class lines. There's more animosity between different social classes. And so that's another place where you see disengagement along social class, which really just means along income and education levels. The third place that you see kind of evidence of growing dehumanization is the rise of automation. So again, this is unsurprising that as technology has become more advanced and as humans are increasingly replaced by technology for various tasks ranging from factory work to, you know, now there's apps that can give us great directions and tell us what a good Italian restaurant is in our area. We have less reliance on human beings. And so we are less inclined to literally see each other in the flesh in our fully human forms. The caveat on automation is that technology isn't necessarily fully negative in terms of its effect on our social lives. You know, we know that we're communicating on Zoom right now, a lot of technology has enabled social interaction and has provided avenues for people to socialize where these people wouldn't have had access before. We think about the elderly or people who are not comfortable in in-person social interactions, people higher on the autism spectrum. Technology can be a force for good, but the overall effect is that technology mediates our interactions with humans more and more. So that's another pillar. So we have polarization along political lines. We have stratification along class lines. We have automation. And then we have what I'm calling marketization, which is a term that I'm borrowing from Michael Sandel in his book, What Money Can't Buy. And Sandel has laid out the argument with compelling evidence that for the past several decades, every sphere of life has become more marketized. And what does that mean? It means that Interactions with humans that used to rely on communal norms, that is, you know, I try to be a good citizen to you, you try to be a good citizen to me, are increasingly transformed into sort of a buyer-seller relationship. So he gives examples, for example, on the highway, there's a carpool lane. You use the carpool lane if you have more than one person in your car, and the goal is to try to carpool more, so you reduce carbon emissions to make a more clean, healthy society. Now you can actually pay for access to the carpool lane, even if you're a single occupancy driver. Small example, but it's this thing where we used to say, okay, you try to be a good community member, you try to not pollute, but you know what? If you want to enter into a different contract with the rest of society, you can pay for that ability. He talks about programs in school that pay children to read or pay for good grades. And whether those are effective or not, I tend to think they're not. What they're doing is they're transforming this relationship between teacher and student, which is, I try to be a good student, you try to educate me into, again, buyer and seller. And so as we increasingly treat each other as sort of commodities to be bought or sold, that contributes to overlooking our real humanity as common community members. So those are kind of the big places where I see evidence of this dehumanizing shift. I'm a big proponent for empathy and compassion. And would you say that there is a drastic decline in both that's leading up to this shift of dehumanizing? Yeah. So the best piece of evidence on this comes from research that, you know, unfortunately ended about 10 years ago, but 
uh, this landmark paper that looked at college students' self-reports of how much they experience empathy. And this is work by Sarah Conrath and colleagues. And what it essentially found is that from 1979 to 2009, college students consistently reported experiencing less empathy for others in terms of saying, you know, I feel, how often do you feel others' pain? Or how often do you try to take others' perspectives? These kind of vicarious feeling components of empathy and these more perspective-taking components of empathy. College students report less and less empathy over time. My sense is that has probably continued into the 2010s and now 2020 as we've become more individualistic toward one another as well. So I think that's a big part of this. Mm. So let's talk about how to reverse this dehumanizing shift yeah. And really, I mean, learn to experience a different shift. And that's to how do we rehumanize ourselves? So yeah. you talk a lot about the human presence. Yeah. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, the first chapter of the book really tries to make this argument that we're experiencing a dehumanizing shift. And then the next kind of chunk of the book really says, well, I don't want to take it for granted that, you know, this dehumanizing shift is problem, but let me suggest to you that the presence of humans is psychologically important and powerful. Again, note that there's one aspect of this that I really don't talk about at all, but which is the importance of human connection, that feeling connected to another person, thereby reducing loneliness has all sorts of positive effects for happiness and even your physical health. My former mentor, John Cassiopo, wrote an entire book about the importance of real human connection. So I didn't dive in too deeply to that. But beyond human connection, the mere presence of another human being has all sorts of psychological power. That is, when we experience human touch that can feel cooperative, that enhances trust, that enhances empathy. When we know that an object was made by human hands versus a machine's hands, all of a sudden that object takes on more value and meaning and authenticity. I talk about how the presence of humans that is noticing that something or someone looks human-like leads us to treat that entity with more care. So animals that look more human-like are treated better than animals that look less human-like. Humans whereby you see their face and know their names are treated better than faceless, nameless human beings. Humanness is also perceived humanness is on a spectrum. And the more we perceive it in others, the more we care about them. And then I, I finally, I talk about how humans influence us to do positive things, engage in really difficult collective action problems like voting. When we see our neighbor voting, we vote more. When we see our neighbor saving energy, we try to save more energy in our household. And then finally, humans motivate us to do things. That is, other humans, we're inclined to work harder on behalf of other humans than we are to work for our own self-interest in many cases. And so what I mean by the presence of humans is just simply noticing humans in our midst, noticing others' humanity, being aware that there's another human that I could benefit, that I could learn from, has all sorts of psychological power to it. And so I think it's worth reversing the dehumanizing shift. Yeah, I love the human influence part of it. 
that how big a role it plays in our actions when we are influenced by positive models that yeah. can help us to reduce things that are going on in the world right now, violence, racism, homophobia. I love the example. Can you talk about the powers of daughters? Yeah. So to give one example of how the presence of humans really influences us and can change our minds, I talk about a kind of a set of papers in different fields that shows that the experience of having a daughter makes men in particular essentially more concerned with gender equality. So there's work showing that in a firm, when the CEO has a daughter, they invest more in corporate social responsibility, particularly in diversity policies that promote gender equity. There's other work by economists showing that venture capital partners with daughters are more inclined to hire a woman, and this enhanced gender diversity even increases profitability. There's work by political scientists showing that judges with daughters tend to vote in a more pro-female way, particularly with regard to cases related to gender discrimination. And what all of this suggests to me is that this is the power of being intimately familiar with another human who maybe isn't like you. So I'm a father. We first had a son who's just about five. And you know, grew up with two brothers. I kind of you know, know what it's like to be a, a male. And then all of a sudden, our next child, we had a daughter. And all of a sudden, it opens your eyes to all sorts of different experiences. And that, to me, is another example of the power of humans to influence you to change your mind on things and to become interested in their well-being and by proxy, their group's well-being, you know, women as a class. Yeah. Touch a little bit on the human motivation aspect of how working for companies that are more generous and giving and that invest in helping others actually increases your work performance. Yeah. So I became familiar with this general idea from Adam Grant, the great organizational behavioral scholar at Wharton, who, amongst other things, conducted a very famous study with a call center at the University of Michigan. And you know, this is not a very fun place to work. There's very low morale. These are the folks who basically call you up and ask for alumni donations. You know, I'm so-and-so from University of Michigan. Will you contribute to the scholarship fund? It's not very fun work. And what Adam found was that when you gave this call center a one-time testimonial from someone who benefited from their work, all of a sudden it enhanced morale and people worked harder and they raised more money. And, and the testimonial was simply someone coming in and saying, hey, you know, I'm a University of Michigan student. Because of your work in raising money, I was able to go to Michigan. And this was something that made me really happy. And this one-time experience of employees recognizing that, oh, my work benefits another human being had all sorts of powerful effects on their motivation. Now, since that work, Adam and, and others have shown there's a tremendous benefit to getting employees to recognize the beneficiaries of your work. So even you know, the wait staff at Olive Garden, when they read a letter from someone who celebrated a major event at their restaurant, you know, a sweet 16 or an anniversary, that's really inspiring. It makes mm -hmm. you want to go out and do a good job. And so even beyond the effect of these kind of singular human beneficiaries that can inspire you to do better work and make you energized about your job, there's all sorts of work showing that 
knowing that your company cares about others, that is maybe your company invests in charitable giving or social responsibility or invests in its community or even takes some of your bonus and requires you to donate it to charity. This has all sorts of positive effects because ultimately what gives people a lot of purpose at work is knowing that they have impact. And so feeling that I'm contributing to a company that has impact on other human beings is a real powerful way to motivate your employees. And in some ways, even more powerful than just giving them a pay raise. Hmm. I love this, Adam. We talk so much about the need for leaders to increase employee engagement since 70% of workers in the U.S. are disengaged, says Gallup. Mm-hmm. And you actually recommend increasing employee disengagement yeah. as it relates to humanizing the workplace. Explain your rationale behind that. Yeah. So a lot of this came from, you know, being a professor in a business school for now almost 10 years and hearing this term engagement for the past 10 years is probably the biggest buzzword that you hear aside from innovation or disruption. But anyway, engagement is a big buzzword. I was teaching a lot about engagement and, you know, look to see examples of engagement. A lot of people point to Silicon Valley firms like Google or Facebook that give employees free time and snacks and pods to rest in. And, you know, one day I was given a tour of the Facebook campus by a friend of mine who worked there. And you see any food that you want, you can go to the cafeteria and get it. And, you know, everything is open office and there are all sorts of pods for snacks. And here's a place over here where you could take time and just do a printmaking project. You know, there's a whole little workshop where you could make art on the job for fun. And my buddy, he had to run to he had a physical therapy appointment on campus. And so these are all these ways that I think a lot of Silicon Valley firms were looking to increase engagement by making employees feel cared for on the job. But implicitly, what you're doing is you're just keeping people at work. And when I talked to my tour guide friend about this. He said this didn't you know, help his productivity in any way. And a lot of times you end up bringing your work home instead. And so it occurred to me that very few people, very few companies are really treating the issue of employee well-being as just letting people get out of work, putting them off the clock. Even companies that offered unlimited vacation, what you find is that people end up taking less vacation than their standard two weeks because they feel like implicitly, you know, well, we're not supposed to take all this time off or they see their fellow employees not taking time off or you don't see the boss taking time off. And so these unlimited vacation policies tend to backfire or people end up working on vacation. And so as automation creeps up on us and we're asked to develop all sorts of new skills to compete with machines, it occurred to me that really just sending people out of the office, sending them home, forcing them not to answer work emails, forcing them to go on vacation, which is now what some companies do, is really important for preventing burnout, for making employees feel human, and for sending employees the message that, hey, we trust you. We're okay with you going on vacation. We're, we trust you that you're going to get your work done. And so I think that sense of autonomy that you're giving people, when you really just tell people to go home, 
you know, you don't have to go to the pseudo mandatory happy hour or, you know, the concert on campus or whatever. You can really just go home and disconnect. I think that's goes a long way. So I'm a, a fan of disengagement to increase engagement, I'll say. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Very counterintuitive. I knew I had to talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about how to reduce conflict. I'm not sure if it's stopping dehumanizing each other in order to reduce conflict or reducing conflict in order to stop dehumanizing each other. But at either rate, it's yeah. hard to reduce conflict right now because we are so polarized. Yeah. And you say that we need to find common humanity. What is that and how do we do that? Well, what I try to talk about is that a lot of the early wisdom around how to reduce conflict between two groups, whether it's two ethnic groups, religious groups, teams that don't like each other, is you focus on similarity. So common humanity, common goals, common enemies. And I think that is important work, but that only gets you part of the way. Because in most conflicts, I would say in virtually any conflict, you have a power disparity, where there's very rarely two groups who have the same level of resources or status or representation. And so when you try these common humanity approaches, like, say, focusing Israelis and Palestinians on well, we're all part of the human race, those types of things tend to work well for the group that has higher power, but not the group that has lower power. And so I think what's really necessary, especially in the age where we are so fractioned in terms of you know, socioeconomic status, there's a clear power imbalance there, political polarization, the group that really has the presidency is the group that really has the power, whatever you think about House of Representatives or whatever, Electoral College, things like that or racial minorities versus racial majorities. I think the way forward to increase common humanity is not to start with this idea that we're all humans, but to be really comfortable with saying we have differences. And because we have differences, we have different goals. We're not just going to take this broad brush approach and say, okay, we're all humans. We all have the same need. You know, what you're seeing now is a a particular community, racial minorities who have been really subject to police violence, saying, you know, we have specific demands and specific needs and a broader white majority doesn't share those needs. And so grappling with the fact that low power groups and high power groups have different ways that they want to reduce conflict is step one. And, you know, to put this in the simplest terms, low power groups want to change the status quo. High power groups want to work within the status quo. And so going beyond common humanity, we have to say, yes, we're all humans, but what makes us all humans is we have divergent opinions. We have to work within those different ways of resolving conflict. Mm. Let's bring this full circle to what's going on right now with all of the the social unrest Mm -hmm. that we're seeing. Using some of your findings with, you know, maybe common humanity, uh, some of the approaches that you talked about. Is there a solution to the problem that we're seeing right now with racial injustice or police brutality? Well, in some ways, I want to be honest and say I am really have have very little to say as a psychologist about one of the big parts of this issue, which is this issue of wanting to reduce the role of police in society and defunding the police. That's kind of a, you know, I think that's the issue that is adjacent to my expertise. So I sort of leave that to the experts in 
who have studied policing and sociology and things like that. In terms of kind of a broader issue of racial injustice, I've been kind of impressed by the attitudinal shift where you see, you know, there's much more support for Black Lives Matter movement and yeah. and those related issues than you've seen 10 years ago, or even I think five years ago, if I'm remembering the polling on this correctly. And so a big part of this, I think, is just the group with more societal power, that is white people, doing a lot of listening. A lot of the work that I reference in the book on the difference between high and low power groups has to do with this simple issue, which is that high power groups really benefit from listening. Low power groups really benefit from being heard. So if you can extrapolate that out into listening to groups with fewer resources, lower societal status, lower representation, I think that is going to have broadly a lot of positive effects. I mean, that's easier said than done. I'm being very broad. What does it mean to listen? What does it mean to express? But I think that has been one kind of direction where I've seen optimism. A lot of people who really could easily say, you know, this isn't my problem and this is not a problem that directly affects me now kind of opening their ears to saying, okay, what do non-white people want? And I think that's been a shift that I've seen in my lifetime, for sure. Yeah, as a white male, I'm confronting myself and my own biases as well mm-hmm. by doing exactly what you said is listening, yeah. listening without judgment, and really just learning. And I've seen a shift in me, Adam, mm-hmm. as, the more I listen and not try to listen, you know, listen without an agenda in my head. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes, it's just bearing witness. And then it gets a little trickier if you wanted to bring this in the organizational context in terms of what really works is then, you know, I think in terms of reducing a lot of inequities in organizations, and that's where this conversation has gone, I think, over mm-hmm. the past few weeks, a lot of this has to do with accountability. You know, who's getting paid what, who's being hired for which positions, who's getting passed over, and it's kind of continuously doing the work every day. So there's some real accountability. Yeah, yeah. Adam, it's been a great conversation. We end our uh, episodes with two final questions. One is, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? I guess, I don't know, what's top of mind for me is I think I've transformed my frustrations around everything that's happened this year in terms of the pandemic and then the protests in response to George Floyd's killing, you know, I sort of felt like possibly this could spark greater imagination within us. I've been kind of disappointed in the United States's capacity for imagination or lack of imagination over the past several years that we don't seem to be really innovative compared to other countries. And I think what a lot of these issues are forcing us to do is to think about, you know, what would a better society look like and really to use our imaginations. And that's what I've been thinking more about lately. Mm. And you get to end the interview your way with one final takeaway of your choice. What's that one thing we can uh, walk away with that's going to make a difference in our lives? Well, bringing this back to the general idea of how do we gain more humanity in our everyday lives, I would say one, you know, just general thing you could do that everyone could do is reach out to someone that you haven't talked to in a while. 
So there's really interesting research showing that people are really hesitant to do this. You know, you know, people think it's going to be awkward. People think that, oh, this person doesn't want to hear from me or they're going to think I want something from them. But this is one of the best things you could do. Uh, when we talk about expanding our social networks, uh, a lot of times we don't think about those dormant ties. And one way to just kind of reinfuse some humanity within us is reach out to a human that you haven't talked to in some time. So I think I'll end with that. <laughs> the book is called The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World. If people want to connect with you and learn more about you, how can they do that? My website is adamwaits.com, A-D-A-M-W-A-Y-T-Z.com. And feel free to shoot me an email. I'm, that's where I live. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. We learn, I've, I've learned a lot from you, and I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. I uh, had a great time too. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. I wish I had more time to talk to Adam because he had a lot more to say. And one of the things I wanted to follow up on is this, how the rise of automation is dehumanizing us. I experience it every day. I know you do too. And, you know, it's replacing humans in the workplace increasingly. But I also want to acknowledge that this is a new era and some humans have to accept that some jobs are history. But as jobs are replaced, what AI and automation is doing is that it's creating new jobs for us. Just like 20 years ago or so, nobody thought about developing web applications. And now we have millions of people doing it as a career choice. So people need to get reskilled and trained in new areas that play to their human strengths. So how do we humanize work in the age of robots and leverage our human skills to, you know, keep the robots from taking our jobs? Well, according to Adam, you first let humans and machines play to their moral strengths. So for example, algorithms do a lot of good things for a lot of people, but plenty of algorithm programs are prone to racial or gender bias, which now requires humans to step in and correct course. We as humans are the ones that will enforce those moral rules, such as making sure not to discriminate based on race and gender, because we're good at it. Robots cannot do that. Adam also says, hey, let robots do the robotic work and let humans do the rest. He suggests dividing up social work, meaning say for a call center environment, you give some of the social interaction on a call to the bots, because as Adam found, it can reduce burnout in jobs that require managing other people's emotions. So the research shows that automated customer service robots can take away the frustrating parts of the call and then route customers to human operators, freeing them up to handle the issues that require human to human contact. So the bots in this case do what they do best and the humans do what they do best, use their problem-solving skills, their emotional intelligence, and their communication that bots don't have. Adam says the most ethical thing we can do is continue to embrace and value humanity, reminding ourselves that as technology advances, because it will, it's always going to be learning from us humans rather than the other way around. My special thanks to Adam Waits for his expert insight and knowledge. And thank you for jumping on the love and action bandwagon to spread the movement. 
We would be grateful if you could leave a positive rating and review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. And finally, if you and your company would like to sponsor future episodes of the Love in Action podcast, I'd love to chat with you. You can reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com. And don't forget, Love in Action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it and be convinced. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.